Welcome to Season 2 of the Legacy Podcasts. I'm Helena Drago. During Season 1, my husband Ty Drago and I provided a unique tutorial about how to write a novel, and we did it using the novel Ty is currently writing, which is based on his grandfather's tales of coming to America as a Sicilian immigrant in 1915. I'm happy to report that since the conclusion of that season, Ty has completed the first draft of that novel, which he is calling The New Americans. To hear Season 1, download Legacy, a unique novel writing experience using whatever app suits your phone. Or you can visit us at twooldfolksdoingstuff.com. Ty and I were inspired by his grandfather's story and wanted to talk to some current-day immigrants to try to understand the immigrants' experiences in this country. So we started talking to a few and realized that each immigrant story was unique and we rapidly realized we could do a whole new season based on their stories. So here we are, our second season, appropriately called Legacy, The Immigrant Experience in America. Immigration in our grandparents' day was very different than it is now. The iconic and romantic images of immigrants entering the New York Harbor and passing the Statue of Liberty no longer fits. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Those are words written on the Statue of Liberty, but those words are no longer the motto of the United States when it comes to immigration. This season, we're going to examine just how drastically immigration has changed. Starting with this episode, we will be interviewing men and women who have come to this country from different countries, cultures, and backgrounds, young and old, rich and poor. We'll do our best to navigate the maze of rules and challenges that immigrants face while trying to do what past immigrants, like our grandfathers did, much more simply in the last century. Along the way, we'll be talking to immigrants who are living their lives in America at every social tier from the famous to the not-so-famous. They'll share with us their stories, where they came from, what brought them here, what were their challenges, and how do they feel about their life in America. So let's get started. Our first guest is Myra, who came here to seek asylum from the troubles in Venezuela. Here's Myra. I come from Venezuela. I moved four years ago, almost five. Most people don't know much about Venezuela except what we hear in the news. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us a little bit about your country, you know, the good things, the bad things? Venezuela has changed a lot in the last 15 years. It used to be a rich country. We have oil. We also have like a, we used to have a beautiful infrastructures and also islands. We used to have everything in. Actually, in 2008, we were like a nominated the happiest country in the world. Things have changed. I don't know if you know about Chavez. Oh, uh, yes. He was the president who tried to uh, impart the socialism in Venezuela, but it's more a communism. He changed the way that the, the currency looks until the way that the people live. Things were gradually, like uh, every year was, we were saying, okay, it will never be so bad. But it was getting low, like a worse, worse, worse. And an industrial engineer, when you have like a, a degree and you want to grow as a profession, and, and I was kind of getting there. But after a while, it was like I, I was getting stuck. I didn't grow anymore. I was getting like a more poor. Sometimes you have the money, but you didn't have the opportunity to just 
go and, um, for example, buy milk. Because even if you have the money, you have to make a big line just to do it. Not just that, it was getting really dangerous. At the time that I decided to move, I have a baby. He was 18 months old. I was opposition. In Venezuela, all you are opposition. There is the people, they don't like Chavez and now Maduro, and the people who is with the government. The, the people from the government is just like, you are like an enemy. And the soldiers or the guards, they are with the government as well. If you are against them or you are doing like protest, they mm. just attack you. So they were attacking my house it, with my baby. I was behind the bed because they were like a, like a uh, throwing with the gums, um, tear gas. I just decided, I told my husband, if you don't want to do it, I mean, I just move with my baby. I'm going to start from scratch. I don't care. I just want to, you know, be in a safe place. And I'm willing to start from zero because I know that I'm going to do my best and everything is going to be fine. Many Americans point to the crisis in Venezuela and declare, see, this is what socialism does. The truth is more complicated. The Council on Foreign Relations, an independent, nonpartisan think tank, blames Venezuela's economic disasters on the mismanagement of its oil reserves, which are the largest in the world. Since the 1950s, the nation's economy has been inextricably linked to the price of oil. This worked great in the 60s and 70s when Venezuela joined OPEC and oil prices soared worldwide. But then in the 1980s, when those prices dropped, the economy fell into recession, inflation soared, and the Venezuelan government accrued so much debt that it finally resulted in the election to the presidency of Hugo Chavez and his socialist platform in 1998. For the next 15 years, Chavez and later his successor Nicolas Maduro strengthened their authoritarian government. Term limits were removed, the free press harassed nearly out of existence, and hundreds of private businesses and foreign-owned assets were seized and nationalized. The driving force behind much of this was the fairly steady recovery of the oil market. That is, until 2014, when the price of oil plummeted from $100 a barrel to 30 in less than two years. At the time, oil sales accounted for 98% of Venezuela's exports and as much as 50% of its gross national product. This time, the economy crashed catastrophically. Since 2017, Venezuela has defaulted on its international debt, annual inflation is running at about 80,000%, and the Venezuelan people lost an average of 24 pounds in body weight. Nine out of ten currently live in poverty. As a result, fully 10% of the population has fled the country. I quit my job. I remember that I told my boss I'm leaving in three weeks. We buy the tickets, it was really expensive and, and it was really hard to get the ticket. My, my mom, um, for her it was easier because my sister is citizen, so she just asked her. But for me, the immigration process is, is not so easy to get. I, I came here for the asylum process, like a, a asylum seeker. So How old were you when you oh, came? I was... I'm 38 right now, so 33. 33. Uh -huh. And you brought a child with you? Yeah, 18 months. Did your husband come with you? Yeah, he comes with me. But he didn't want to just leave everything there. I, I don't want to quit my job yet. 
and he quit here. Like uh, we were in the US and he called, you know, I'm not gonna go back. And um, for he was more difficult because he used to work in a public company, but the government took over the public companies. Any time that the president needed to, the people just be there to just pretend that they are with the government, he used to be forced to go there. So he was like, a, okay, I don't want to quit because we don't know what is going to happen in, you know, in the U.S. Worst case scenario, I'm going to go back to, to Venezuela and, and make money there and you can stay safe. But at the end, well, you, we stay here, we start all the documentation and paperwork, we uh, hire two attorneys in, in Philadelphia. It has been like a really long process, but just like a two weeks ago, we received the green card, so. Congratulations. And I got pregnant here, so it's like, a, oh my gosh. <laughs> so you came here about five years ago. Uh-huh. And it's April taking 1st. you that long to get a green card? Yes. Yes. So you, just, you bought airline tickets in Venezuela yeah, with your was. Venezuelan passport. Yeah. And you flew to Philadelphia? It was crazy because I got from Venezuela to Curaçao, Curaçao to Aruba, Aruba to Miami, Miami to Philadelphia. Since my sister is, is here, I mean, with a small kid, I mean, you're gonna be here to, to support you, help you in the, so definitely help. Get to Philadelphia, how do you request asylum? So I uh, was with my tourist visa, that's why, that's how I got here. A tourist visa. A tourist visa. After that, we were like with my husband, what are we gonna do? And we went to the attorney, we explained the situation that was happening in Venezuela, and we were afraid to go back. We explained, you know, how the people was attacking our house and our apartment and everything. And they said, well, your case applies for an asylum process. What Myra is describing is the affirmative process for requesting asylum. To qualify for this, an applicant must have been in the country for no more than one year and must not be the subject of a pending or active deportation proceeding. If asylum is granted, which is by no means certain, then the individual is authorized to work in the U.S. and apply for a Social Security card. After one year, he or she may apply for a green card and eventually citizenship. Asylum requests are managed and decided by the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. That decision is supposed to be returned within six months. In reality, the wait can be much longer, as the enormous influx of Central and South American migrants fleeing violence in recent years has created a massive backlog. According to the American Immigration Council, as of March 2018, there were more than 300,000 asylum applications pending and almost 700,000 open deportation cases in U.S. immigration courts. Asylum decisions can take anywhere from six months to several years, during which time applicants often find it difficult to obtain work permits. And on average, 60 to 70% of all asylum requests are denied. Just uh, at the cost of all, you know, the, the paperwork and stuff, just with the attorneys was $6,000. So this is not for everyone. For us work, because I mean, we have savings and stuff, but some people just, just, just can't. So it was just a part of the attorneys. Then you have to, any time that you apply for the working permit, you need to pay as well. I mean, you want to hire the attorney to fill out the documentation for you, you need to pay. I remember he was saying just to help you with the form is like a $500. And it's for my husband and I because we, we were both working. 
we need to renovate the work permit like a three times until we got the, the green card, so imagine $3,000. No one seems to know exactly how much money was paid in any given year in legal fees and other expenses to support applications for asylum. Technically, there is no fee when applying for asylum. However, the National Immigration Forum reports that in 2017, 90% of applicants without an attorney were denied, while almost half of those with legal representation were successful. Asylum applicants are not granted public defenders, free legal help can be very difficult or impossible to find, and private immigration lawyers are expensive. With only a little digging, it's easy to see that immigration has become a billion-dollar business in America. Myra's number of $6,000 is typical. Now multiply that by the 331,700 applications received in 2017, whether accepted or denied, and the number gets very big indeed. Clearly, it's not easy, nor cheap, to seek asylum in the U.S. Yes, and even just to, uh, to apply for the green card, you need to do like a test. You need to go to a doctor, an immigration specialist. It's going to be a, a doctor, but it's, it's going to be just an immigration. So your insurance is not going to cover that. For the three of us, it was $800. And just to apply for the green card, but I mean, I need to apply. And oh, I want to apply because at the end, I want to be a citizen. And what's the doctor doing? Just confirming you're healthy? Just confirming that I don't have like a tuberculosis mm -hmm. or if I'm healthy. But it's funny because I already have like a three years here, so right. nothing happens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a, really a throwback from like 50, 60 years ago when people came over on boats through Ellis Island. The uh -huh. only check they had was health and tuberculosis and typhoid. And, and, then, and then they were in. Yeah. But now you need to pay for it. Right? Yeah. That didn't cost them anything. Yeah. Yeah. You're seeking a green card for you, your husband, and your child. Mm -hmm. And you have a child that was born here, so that child is a citizen. Mm -hmm. He's a citizen. And is it your intention to become a citizen? Yes. Yes, when I decide to move here, and that's something that probably some immigrants made that mistake. I mean, if I decide to move to U.S., I want to be part of the culture. I want to help to, to this country. I mean, and I'm part of U.S. I don't want to be always, you know, that the Venezuelan that never wants to mix with the Americas, no. Actually, in, in our case, it's, it's different. We usually are with Americans. I work as an, an international sales manager in, in, a, in a distribution company, and I always force myself to, you know, to, to be better and to be like a one of Americans working and doing the best for this country. My son, he doesn't feel like Venezuelan. He feels like an, um, he's American. Right. He, he was a baby. He was a baby. For me, it was a challenge at the beginning because you have all these, how can I say, like a Thanksgiving. That's something that I don't celebrate. But it's something that I'm doing, I enjoy because I want my son feels, you know, that he's right. part of it. For me, it's everything new. I try to read, okay, Thanksgiving comes from here. Like, because it's different. It's about overeating. <laughs> but it's something really important because it's not something that you celebrate in Venezuela because we, our history is different. But I mean, in America, I want to be part of it. You need to be part of the society and blend. 
EOS bring me the opportunity to start over and I have had bad situations but also good I have have like in my life angels that have helped me to be where I am now and so I'm really grateful I, I find it interesting you said that you're blending into American society but one of the things that I personally think strengthens American society. We are a country of immigrants that we each mm -hmm. bring our own traditions from other countries into the United States. And what do you feel like you're bringing in? Do you have traditions that you include and, and celebrate from your country? Well, for us, Christmas, uh, New Year is like a big party. The type of food that we cook and eat is different. We don't eat the turkey, we eat more like pork. We, we try to have like a dinner in American style and the other one in the Venezuelan style, so they have the both worlds. My kids and even myself, we like to try different kind of food from different countries. I think it is amazing. Like, right. so yeah, that's what we try. And in general, not just the traditions, what we try to bring like as a Venezuelan to this society is I don't know, the Venezuelan style is really charismatic. We are always making jokes, we're always smiling. And I remember when I used to introduce myself to, to people in my world, like, why are you smiling so much? <laughs> and uh, I used to go, you know, hi, good morning. I said, why are you so cheerful this in the morning? But now they missing when I don't say that to them. They're like, oh, something is wrong. So. I think maybe we're bringing into this society, you know, the, the cheerful that we have. <laughs> Just switching gears a little bit. So you have your green card. Uh-huh. And then what's the next step to become a U.S. citizen? I'm not sure because I'm not there yet. And I, at least I need to wait like a three more years. But usually it takes from three to five years to you be able to apply for citizenship. And that after that amount of time, you need to fill out one form and just to apply and change your or readjust your status. So green card means per lawful permanent residence. Yes. The next step is to wait three to five years uh -huh. and then you have to apply for citizenship. I have to apply. After you have the green card or the permanent, it's like an easier process. It's more difficult to get the green card, you know? Right, and right. that's the big hurdle. That's the big hurdle, yeah. So tell us a little bit about your experiences since you've come to this country. How do Americans treat you? What are um, some of your great experience here and, and maybe some of your worst experiences here? Okay, I can tell in a different perspective, like for example, in, the, in my work. At the beginning, sometimes because you are not talking the, in the perfect English, you're maybe like, oh, she's not smart enough. I need to fight with that label that I'm more than, you know, that, than that, and I'm smart enough. For me, it has been a challenge to change that perception that I feel that people feel about me. On, and I'm more in, I think, New Jersey, for example, Philadelphia or New York. The people is more open to another, to an accent. But in New Jersey, I haven't, in my job, for, for example, Persons just didn't understand and didn't even like I tried to, hey, I didn't understand you. Can you please repeat? They just ignore you or don't talk to you anymore. On another hand, there are people who is really interested in your culture. Oh, what do you eat? How, how do you do this? How do you do that? So you have the, the two things. There are people who is really 
close-minded that they don't want to even know anything about you they feel that you have an accent they don't want to talk to you and you have people who is really into that i find it amusing that we jerseyans are complaining about somebody else's accent that's <laughs> <laughs> funny <laughs> do you have any regrets related to immigrating here no at all I'm really grateful, as I said before, with this country. I believe and truly believe this country has a lot of opportunities. Some people don't just realize how much do you have. You can just do, like, I can't start my business. I can just work from home. You have the flexibility. Even to do the grocery shopping, you just go and walk by or just online. You can just make a purchase. It's like, it's so easy. I know I have no regrets. My kids are happy. They are learning. They have a really good education. And I know they're going to have a great future. So I have no regrets. Two sons. So you have a son you brought with you and, and one that was born here? Or one. Yeah. So that was another challenge. Since I was in the process for the immigration, that there is a moment when you are not tourists anymore, but you don't have like a working visa. We were not able to have like an insurance, so it was really expensive. So mm. when I got pregnant with my second child, I didn't have insurance enough to cover, you know, the pregnancy stuff. So uh, we applied to charity with Lady of Floor and we have our child there. It was amazing. They covered everything. And it was really good. I mean, I started working and I have my insurance right now. Everything is fine. I'm going to ask a question that might seem a little rude. So, <laughs> and it's, it's something that comes up frequently when I talk to people. Some of the things they say is immigrants don't pay taxes. Mm-hmm. Do you pay taxes? Oh, I pay. For me, it's something different to the taxes. In Venezuela, it's kind of easier. Here, it's like a really, you need, you need to provide all the documentation, it's all the paperwork. It's complicated. So I'm always being like a legal and a immigration status. What's healthcare like in Venezuela before you left? People get healthcare through their work. Was it government sponsored? Okay, people used to have the the healthcare uh, through the work, like here, but also you used to have you know the government, the the public hospitals. The problem is because they were public and they were handled by the government. They didn't have enough resources. It's, it was not safe, you know, to go there. At least. Not for my family. Some people didn't have any option and they have to just go to the hospital. It wasn't quality care. It, it was, no, it was not. Now it's even worse. It's really bad. Yeah, just last week, uh, they spent four days with no electricity. Mm-hmm. So people was dying in the hospitals. So yeah. But it's really expensive. He, the, in Venezuela, I used to take like, a, I don't know, maybe... One percent of my salary is was it was cheap, but here is it, it's, it's very expensive. And I have kids, so it's even more expensive mm-hmm. because it's family. Do you have any family left in Venezuela? Just a few. Most of my family they they, immig- they emigrate to another countries. I have family in Spain. Uh, I have family in other parts of the U.S. Well, I have family in Colombia as well. So yeah, most of them immigrate even friends i have friends over the world now if they immigrated to colombia or they they immigrated to spain is do you know if their process was easier than yours was coming here i think it's difficult as well it's difficult it's massive people in venezuela is living like a in a big quantity now the countries are like okay let's slow down let's do like a process the easiest place to emigrate i heard that is chile and peru 
since in Venezuela there are like a, a big percentage of the population came from Spain, from Europe, if your family have, have been from there, it's easier to do the paperwork because you are you have your like a your European passport. But even though when they are there to find a job, to have like a life, it's really expensive. I have some of friends that they just ask me, how do you live in the U.S.? Because here it's really expensive. So some people living when they are in Spain, they want to evaluate to move here. Mm-hmm. I can tell you in four years, I already have a house, I have cars. If you work hard, you can have whatever you want. Then here's my last question for you. Mm-hmm. This podcast is called a Legacy Podcast, and mm-hmm. Legacy is defined as a gift or a bequest that is handed down or endowed from one person to another. So, what legacy do you want to pass down to your children, to society? What do you want your legacy to be? As an immigrant? Yeah. As, as, as a you. As a you. Think about it, it's a big question. Oh. Okay, I will say I want to live as a legacy, not just to my kids in general, just be you. Be the best version of yourself and be humble. Do your best. What I feel, and sometimes that happens to me as well, is like you are so focused in your daily, daily, how do you say? Um, Daily, daily, daily life. Daily, daily life that you don't look around and you forget about the other people. So if we see everybody like a society, if we try to help others, you feel better as well. And you are doing like a, something different. It's gonna change the society, so. Immigration is an incredibly complex issue, a fact that Helena and I are only beginning to comprehend. Myra's story is just the first we've heard. In future episodes, we'll be sharing other people's stories, with each shedding light on another aspect of the U.S. immigration laws and policies. You'll meet the fortunate and the less fortunate, the famous and the not-so-famous, all in an effort to better grasp the challenges, successes, and disappointments that immigrants face when coming to America. There's a lot to parse, a lot to understand. We're looking forward to it, and we hope you'll take this journey with us. See you in two weeks. This is Ty Drago, and you've been listening to Episode 1 of Legacy, The Immigrant Experience in America. Legacy, The Immigrant Experience was written and produced by Ty and Helena Drago. Our thanks go to Myra for her willingness to share her immigrant story. The music you are listening to is called Secret Conversations by the 126ers, found on YouTube's royalty-free music.